Welcome to the 370th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Kirsty Manning, author of the novel The Lost Jewels. And stay tuned after the interview for a short excerpt from the audiobook of The Lost Jewels. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Kirsty Manning, author of the novels The Song of the Jade Lily and The Midsummer Garden, and her new novel, The Lost Jewels. Kirsty, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your novel, The Lost Jewels, yet, how would you describe the novel? Well, it is a multiple time frame mystery uh, based on a true story. It is the story um, of the Cheapside Horde that is currently homed in the Museum of London. And in 1912, the story goes, um, some navvies, some workmen dug up 500 pieces of precious jewellery on a work site in Cheapside London, just behind St Paul's Cathedral. And um, and then those jewels quickly disappeared again. They were pocketed, they were pawned. You can imagine to these very impoverished workmen, they um, really were life-changing for them in many ways. And so it's a great mystery what happened to all the jewels. But um, somehow a pawnbroker got hold of it and he collected 500 pieces and they ended up in the Museum of London and so we're fortunate that we do have some. And we're talking an emerald watch the size of a baby's fist, bags of pearls, Byzantine brooches, um, sapphire rings and um, a Champlive diamond ring. And the, the Cheapside Hoard is my imagined story of that jewellery. So it's a story of Essie, an uh, Irish immigrant whose brother is one of the workmen on the site. And she was there those the day the jewels were dug up in 1912. And it is also the story of Kate, a contemporary jewellery historian from Boston, who is sent to London to write a story on the Cheapside Jewels. And while she's in London, she decides to write, um, find out a bit about her great-grandmother's story, Essie, um, because she doesn't know why Essie left London all those years ago. And she starts to 
not only research the history of the jewels but the history of her grandmother's story. And then um, there's a third strand running through the book, which is an origin story of a piece of jewellery. So we see um, uh, one of these precious pieces of jewels that's in the museum from origin, so from in the ground, across the trade routes, across the seas, and um, imagined uh, we see the process of crafting a piece of jewellery and how it ends up in the museum. And that's all fiction. Yeah, of course. That's great. Well, well, you said that there was 500 jewels in in the Cheapside uh, jewels uh, that that were that were collected. Have historians been able to um, speculate about how many there were originally? Look, they really have no idea, but the um, the breadth of the jewels found and the value of them suggests that um, it was either a working cache of um, a jeweller who was repairing for the aristocracy or royalty because only um, the very wealthy would have um, had such a mass of jewels. But don't forget, um, but they have been managed, they have managed to date um, the time that they think they were buried based on some later pieces of jewellery and they put it around um, the mid-1600s, which, of course, is the time of uh, the Civil War in England, the Great Fire and also the plague. So my burning question always um, was who would bury 500 pieces of jewellery and never return? And, of course, when you overlay that, if you go back to 16. 16- 66 and you've got the great fire and you've got the plague and of course the civil war before that there's any number of reasons somebody would hide a cache of jewelry in the ground and never come back so when did you first learn about the cheap side jewels i stumbled across an article a review of the exhibition quite by accident when i was um, researching the song of the jade lily as as happens when you're writing historical fiction you kind of uh, go down rabbit holes of research and um, I was doing one you know a day of that one day and um, just stumbled across this random piece and I I was just enthralled by the story and I thought there were so many gaps in between what the historians historians know and what they don't know it's just ripe for fictionalizing really and did you know at that point you wanted to write about it and you just set it to the side since you were working on something else? I did. I uh, created a folder on my, um, on my, um, you know, on my computer and I started printing out things and put them away. And because, of course, it's very um, tempting for a shiny new idea to take over when you're in the depths of a, when you're in the middle, the murky middle of a novel, it's very tempting to put it aside and think, no, this idea is much better. But um, so I did. I I quietly started reading around it, but I knew that it would make um, I knew it would make a great story. But it's quite a technical book, and it's as I said, it's multi layered, and I just wanted to be sure that I could do it justice. So I needed a big run up to do this book. So, what can jewels and jewelry tell us about history and specific historical periods? Well, I mean, the story of um, jewels is the story of colonisation and exploration. I mean, uh, if we look at London in the 17th century, that's the um, Elizabethan era. That's when Elizabeth's ships were on the seas and um, the silk routes were in operation and um, 
they were going into countries and taking, you know, sapphires and um, emeralds from Colombia and diamonds from India. And uh, and don't forget that jewellery at that time was also, it's very compact and it's very easy to transport. So jewellery um, was more valuable in some cases than gold coin in countries. Like if you're carrying a bag of rubies or diamonds, I mean, that's just, you, you're in possession of extraordinary wealth. And so it tells you about um, the fashions if you look at what the women were wearing. And at that time, there was a mercantile class rising in London in the 17th century. And so it was possible not to be wealthy, not just as an aristocrat, but as a a merchant trader. And so you see those photos of men and women with frilly collars and um, necklaces, enamel and gold and um, uh, gem-studded necklaces sewn in and stitched onto their bodices. And they'll have rings stitched into the ruff of their sleeves and the neck, their lace ruffs, just to kind of show their wealth and um, show, I guess, one up the aristocracy who are losing their wealth. And um, so it tells you a lot about the tastes of the time. And also a piece of jewellery can be melted down and remade and reshaped over the years. So um, what's unusual about the Cheapside Hoard is we wouldn't have seen like the enamel would not have lasted on many of these um, precious pieces of jewelry because it just would have worn away against the body and um, and so it's the story of um, the craftsmanship at the time and and the care and the hours that were put into making a single perfect piece of jewelry. Well, while researching the lost jewels, was there anything that surprised you about the history of jewelry making? Uh, it didn't surprise me, but I I actually went to a Cartier exhibition and, um, and at this Cartier exhibition, I mean, many of us, most of us, I will never in my life probably wear a multi-strand diamond necklace anywhere, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but to see one up close, it is really, it takes your breath away. Um, the decadence and the extravagance and the exquisite craftsmanship, it really is a pinnacle of beauty and the pinnacle of human achievement. I mean, it's its something magical and it's a team of people that strive to create this piece of magic. And when I was at the Cartier exhibition, um, I saw some of the sketches um, where they kind of list exactly how each diamond is going to be cut and faceted and where it's going to be placed on a necklace. And there could be 2,000 diamonds on one of these garlanded necklaces. And it took two or three years for these pieces of jewellery to be made, just one piece of jewellery, many, many hands, um, gem cutters, polishers, uh, designers, um, goldsmiths, the hand-wrought nature of it and how they all work together to create something so perfect and so exquisite it really is in very like teeny tiny hammers and, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's like painting on a piece of rice. It's so extraordinary and um, and they're so dedicated. So I think that, I think, you know, as a writer, I'm very dedicated to craftsmanship. But when you see it's that mastery of an art. 
um, when you see exquisite jewellery like that, we think it's ostentatious, but it is also representing not just the wearer, but the people who made it. It's, it's their story as well. Sure. And what's the value of something like that, the one that you mentioned that you saw with the design? Do you remember? Uh, the Cartier, I mean, I think they're priceless. There's a there's some yeah. that they wouldn't even sell. I think I think they replicated one. I saw, you know, the movie Oceans Eight that yeah. had um, a Cartier necklace. They replicated one that I saw, and that cost 150 million dollars. Apparently, oh god, wow! <laughs> <So laughs> probably won't be wearing one anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. So, so what are your earliest memories of reading in books? Uh, well, I grew up in rural Australia, a long way from the city. So, books really were my entree into the world. So, my earliest memories were um, we have a children's story series here called Cutterpot and Snuggle Pie, which is about two little gum nut babies. It's very Australian. And then, um, and then I read a lot of the British series, the Inner Blyton, and then um, later getting the American classics, Huckleberry Finn, Catcher in the Rye, To Kill a Mockingbird in my teens. And um, but what literature gave me when I was very, very young and um, in my teenage years was an entree into the world. I mean, I really. I had never been, I hadn't really spent a lot of time in cities at all and I certainly had never been overseas. But, um, you know, when I started reading the Russians, I could imagine a Russian winter and it's 40 degrees Celsius in Tamworth where I grew up in summer. So it's hot, hot, hot. <laughs> but, you know, you can transport yourself into the most bitter, barren um, Russian winter and, um, and uh, you know, through books, have friendship and um, learn about food that I'd never seen. It really, books really can uh, let you travel outside a world when you can't access it any other way. And I think that's why people are going back to books at the moment, actually. In Victoria, um, I know you've had a dreadful time. I've been thinking about you all in America and in Victoria, we're back here in lockdown. So we've got another, I think it's six weeks to go where we're not allowed, we're not allowed out except for, um, you know, essential things. Sure. And um, and so books really are a way of travelling and escape. It's where I've been kind of curling back in. It nurtures you and it feeds the mind. And, you know, I read everything from mysteries to travel to um, historical fiction and it's just, it's really quite, it's a way that it broadens your world really quickly. Sure. And it forces you to slow down and think and really engage in a way that watching Netflix doesn't, which, by the way, I have also been watching a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think you're the only one. <laughs> so so what was your path to writing and, uh, and publishing your first novel? Uh, well, I studied literature at university and I worked for a time in book publishing so I worked as an editor in non-fiction area and then I um, when I had children I have three kids I took time out and I freelanced as a publishing manager and I also started freelancing journalism so I wrote a lot of feature stories about um, people 
and I did some travel writing and food writing. And the thing about um, writing features about people and also travel writing is that you've got a very small space on the page if it, in a newspaper article, if you're in a major broadsheet, say, you have to get to the core of this the core of the person or the core of the place really quickly and evoke that for the reader. So it taught me about writing, you know, really sharp characters and giving you the essence of a character or a place and um, evoking that for someone. So they were good lessons. And then uh, when I turned 40, I gave myself a creative writing course, an online online creative writing course, and um, I did it online and overseas because I'd worked in publishing in Australia and I thought my fiction writing might be so terrible I'd be mortified if anyone in Australia <laughs> saw that saw my attempted work so so I did um so I did I think it was an eight week online course and that quite suited me because um, I knew I wouldn't be able to get to a physical school just with young children and um, work it was just really busy so and at the end of that uh, you had to submit 3,000 words and there would be an editor and it was um, Penguin Random House in England um, and they would read a piece that you submitted and I submitted this um, 3,000 words. And I can't believe, I look back at it and I think, did I show that 3,000 words to anyone? It's so bad. But she wrote a very kind review um, of the piece back to me and she said, if you can sustain a novel with this voice, um, I think that you have no doubt that it will be agited and published and that um, was The Midsummer Garden. So I decided to treat myself um, as a writer then and I gave, my six, gave myself six months to finish the manuscript and send it out to agents um, and then I was picked up by Curtis Brown in Australia and overseas and um, and then my book, my first novel went to auction and they bought that and they said, do you have a second novel at the time that they bought that? And I had just been on holidays with my family in Shanghai and um, I, to my great shame, I had no idea of the Jewish ghetto and the Jewish history of Jewish refugees in Shanghai in the Second World War. And, and so I said, well, yes, I do have a story to my publishers and I wrote a proposal that day. And that became the sum of the Jake Lee. And what is it about historical fiction that you that that you enjoy writing? Uh, I think I really enjoy discovering um, forgotten pockets of history, things that have been slightly overlooked in the history texts and also in fiction. And I think I love. Um, delving into stories of um, often I'm asked about writing why I write about um, strong women but to me women have always been strong um, <laughs> I don't think um, I don't think that has changed through history I just think they haven't been written about and they weren't given a voice because they were getting on with the business of you know raising families and taking them across the seas to new nations and um, just had their heads down working hard. And so I wanted to give voice to those um, women and kind of pay homage in a way, if you like, to the people that really have forged our history, um, who forged the history of people who've gone before us. So I think 
And I think history teaches us so many lessons. We always say that um, we won't forget, but I knew if I wrote a story about immigration and refugees in Australia in contemporary times, it would be really unpalatable and didactic. People um, in Australia and perhaps America would turn away from that because it's a really fraught and emotional topic, but you put it in history and people can really connect and so many people said with the song of the jade lily oh i can see why people left their home i can see why they left europe and put their family on a boat and went to asia you'd do anything to save your family so i think um historical history and the lessons that it teaches us allows us um to kind of walk in another person's shoes like atticus finch said and you know how to book flights and hotels All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Um, And I think, you know, of course, when I wrote The Lost Jewels, I had no idea that in Australia, we've had the worst bushfires this year that we've ever seen across our country. And now we are all locked inside because of a crazy plague um sweeping the globe and um i think the lessons of history in the lost jewels london is almost a character i mean that's a city that has been raised to the ground so many times and um i talk about wren's monument in in the book which was a monument built after the great fire of london and it's got london personified as a woman and she's on her knees and she's being helped up by God and charity and um, some of the mercantile classes. And the thing about London is she rises again and again and each time she's more diverse city and um, more glittering, she's stronger, she's more um, embracing of people from different places. And I think um, in this period lessons from history show me that we're going to be okay I mean it's really hard and we're all separated from our loved ones and um, and you know great losses are being um, suffered but what people um, are realizing is the things that get us through are hope and resilience and community and reaching out and connecting with people like that is all the stuff people are recalibrating at the moment what is precious to them and um, the Lost Jewels is about what is precious. You know, what is the meaning of jewellery? Is it the value of the jewellery? Is it in the craftsmanship or is it in the promise when somebody gives you a piece of jewellery? Because that is always a gesture. That is always a promise. And it's about, um, you know, living with hope and how hope when you lose everything else, when everything else is taken away from you, when you're shut down, when you lose everything, how do you pick yourself up 
and carry on? How do you reset yourself like a piece of jewellery and carry on? And I think lessons of um, people past, like women who lived through the suffragettes, people who lived through the plague, people who lived through the Great Fire, they've all done this and they can all show us how to kind of set forth and go. So that's that's great. Uh, I, I'm curious, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels? <laughs> Look, I think um, I think it is to understand that self doubt is a normal part of the process. I mean, I find myself cowering at my ideas, but I think the thing is to remember that writing is a verb. And um, and you are a writer once you start writing and just to push through because I um, have days where it just kind of flows and other days where it's agony. But I sit down and I write every single day and especially when you're starting out, mm-hmm. writing is a craft like anything um else like if you were training for a marathon you wouldn't just go out and write a marathon you'd write just you'd go for a jog and you'd you know jog for a minute and walk for a bit and then you'd jog for another minute and writing's like that if you just do a little bit constantly and build up you'll find that your skill really improves and you'll look back at some of the words that you put down on the page and it'll be like a little present to your future self because sometimes you'll cringe but you'll find more and more often you'll say, actually, that isn't bad. And the other thing to remember is you cannot edit something that is unwritten and the rewriting and the opportunity to edit and go over and just um, smooth out sentence by sentence your work is is very precious. So I think my um, advice to writers would be just to do, just keep writing, get those words down, keep going understand that self-doubt is normal but don't use it as an excuse to um, stymie your work just put those words down and um, in a in a day or a week or a year when you look back at it you'll be grateful for those words that you've written that's great advice so are you working on another novel now I have just delivered a novel and um, to my publishers in America and to Australia. And so that um, that is kind of, a, well, it is a dual time frame, another history, and that kind of starts in pre-war France and goes into the Second World War. So it's, it's, a, it's a gritty book, but my um, publisher got back to me the other day and she thinks it's my best yet. So that was delightful. Um, and that was one that I was really stymied with doubt. So if any of you listeners are there, I, I just thought, I don't know, how can I honour this topic and um, and deliver it in a way that's meaningful for readers but also fresh? And um, and so, you know, that's in. There's a lot, long way to go in the editing. And <laughs> I'm just putting together some pictures for a few more books. So I've got two ideas that have been kind of, rattling around in my head and I'm I've kind of nailed out the structure of one the other day so I'm very excited again it's um on a forgotten piece of history so I just was it sometimes takes me a few months to work out the right angle to approach the story and I I go for lots of long walks and um mull over and then suddenly you know almost the structure of the book will fall out in a day it's crazy I don't know I can't explain. There's no science to it, but 
there's something that happens in your subconscious, I think. And so what is the writing process like for you, um, given what you just described? Do you um, do you work at that kind of in your head until you have the right angle? And, and then from from there, when you have the right angle, how much of an outline do you write before you dive into the book and start the actual writing? Great question. Uh, I, I have the kernel of an idea and I have a notebook that I will um, start jotting down characters and I'll start playing with names and maybe giving them attributes. And while I'm doing that, I'm reading um, really widely and deeply into um, my research. So The Lost Jewels, I was reading about goldsmiths in London and reading about um, The Great Fire and Samuel Pepys' diary, the, um, you know, the serial philanderer and public servant who kept a diary of the great fire but also buried his parmesan cheese in the in the backyard to preserve it so little quirks and when you're reading history you pick up little quirks of characters and um think about how you fold them into your back into your book and um so so i kind of um get an idea of who my cast is going to be and um, i start looking at the places i'm going to set it and researching that and then i'll um I'll do that for a few months and I'll just let it bubble away and I'll take a notebook and start writing, like maybe get an idea. I'll often I have an idea of the beginning, the opening scene and the ending scene and I'll jot those down. And then when I'm really serious, um, like the other day when I had to get a pitch in, I sit down in Scrivener, which is a writing program, and it's enormously helpful for any listeners out there for I find for writers, but especially if you're writing from multiple points of view or time frame, because you can map out um, the different threads of your storyline, the different narrative threads, and you can almost see at a glance, I mean, it's not a science, but you can see at a glance whether you've got too much of one storyline or too much of another, or you, you know, you can really, and then I kind of put in the beginning, I put in the ending, I put in a couple of um, key turning points in the book and then there'll be a couple of scenes that I really want to um, get in there that uh, that I've read from my history and I think that's really important that that kind of gets that moment, gets passed on to the reader. So I'll put a few of those in. But the trick is, of course, when you're writing historical fiction, not to let the history dictate the story, which is, uh, you know, I'm getting better at not just um, downloading history. Um, you have to really write a cracking plot and beautiful characters and let the history not be the scaffolding for that. The plot and the characters are the scaffolding of the book and then the history is layered on after that. Um, I'm getting better at finding out what I need to know. So I will do Scrivener. And then um, the joy of Scrivener is once I've got a, a, a plan, it's not an exact plan, but it's a line with a few key points. Um, the other great thing about Scrivener is it's got a word, um, a word count feature on it. And so I turn that on and I have my date that I want the first draft of my manuscript finished. And it literally calculates how many words a day you have to write <laughs> to hit that date and I I think being a journalist um, the thing is you just write words 
you know, give me a thousand words by tonight, give me two thousand words by tomorrow, give me three thousand words, you know, on Wednesday, and then you'll have three or four articles going. So um writing a chunk of words quickly is my happy place. Um and I find that if I write, I think it's that business of being a writer, if I write regularly, especially at the beginning, because you don't really know exactly who your characters are. It takes me about 20,000 words really to feel what my characters are and almost sometimes almost to the end of the book to work out what the themes, the real themes of the book are. And then you go, ah, okay, I see what's happening here. And then you go back to the beginning and really um, beef up your characters and give them all backbone based on you know, how the story has evolved because, um, of course, as the plot continues, you work out how your characters would react to certain situations and that really determines, you know, who they become and you might want to kind of have a tinker with that at the beginning again. So I think um, the discipline of writing. Having said that, I can go through periods where I'm really quite stymied and that's when I was talking about going for the long walks and um, with this book I last delivered it's about quite um, a difficult topic we're in isolation it was quite um, it delves into some quite uh, uh, I guess some dark trauma and it's um, can be a hard place to have carry that in your head so I would say to readers, if you're writing about dark things sometimes, um, exercise and sunshine and fresh air, you know, <laughs> is really important. So um, so the walking just became a way of just making sure that I stay buoyant, if you like, and that's as, part of write, as much a part of writing as anything else because you can get really wrapped up in your story and... Um, when you have children and a family, and especially when you're in lockdown with them 24-7, they don't give you a lot of space to be in your head all the time. So you need to find a way to kind of get in and out of um, your story quickly. And I find Scrivener and writing regularly does that. But um, having said that, at the end, just before my manuscript is delivered, I'll often have like a huge creative flurry where I will write thousands of words or I'll cut thousands of words. I'll kind of see the the true line of the story and um, and it will come together. So I guess I am truly journalistic in that regard in that I write up um, right to that final hour. I wish I were that person that has it prepared months in ahead. And with my next book, I've made promises to myself. Never again, I said. But, um, you know, I've been saying that since my university thesis. So we'll see. We'll see. So so what novels or nonfiction have you read recently that you enjoyed? Well, I'm in the middle of one at the moment by Leila F. Sayed, um, Me and White Supremacy. Uh, to recognise your privilege, combat racism and change the world um, because I think we all need to try a bit harder and um, I'm trying to kind of educate myself um, in areas that maybe I haven't, um, I, I have always felt that I was across, but, you know, I'm listening a lot more. So I am reading that. I have read... Um, some memoirs of people in wartime era and I've been reading a bit about pre-war France which has been fascinating and life on the Riviera 
which has also been fascinating. There's a book called um, It Just Escapes Me. Anyway, there was a history on the Riviera, which I've just read. I've got um, on my desk here, I've got Sally Rooney's Conversations with Friends. I read normal people, but I missed Conversations with Friends, and I understand that's very remiss of me because so, she's a wonderful writer. So I'm having a read of that at the moment. And um, I'm actually, I've got a book here that I bought. I've got Anne Patchett's new novel, The Dutch House, that I'm about to start. And I've also got a book um, that I bought for one of my teenagers called Flow, which is a classic work on how to achieve happiness because I bought it for everyone to read it in lockdown and um, nobody has bothered to read it. have said thanks talk to the hand and um so i'm reading it good good so where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels oh i love to hear from people so i'm at um kirsty manning au on instagram and kirsty manning.com on um, my website and there's a contact page so you can email me there but instagram kirsty manning au and facebook i'm kirsty manning writer great well again we've been speaking with kirsty manning author of the new novel the lost jewels the novel is available now so go buy a copy and kirsty thanks for doing this interview thank you very much and now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Lost Jewels by Kirsty Manning, narrated by, by Natasha Beaumont, published by Harper Audio and available wherever audiobooks are sold. The smoke was so thick she had to draw her apron across her mouth. Her long plaits were singed black from falling fire drops. They'd need to be chopped off. Mama would be furious, but she had made a promise to Papa. She had to see it through, even though the roar of flames raced through the narrow cobblestone streets. No one would be missing her yet. Mama would be passing under London Bridge in the long boat with the baby, both wrapped in heavy woolen blankets to protect them from the embers raining down. The girl had begged, then pushed mother and baby into the overcrowded boat as barrels of oil and tallow exploded behind her, promising she would jump in the boat behind. Think of the baby, Papa would. Her words had been whipped away by the searing easterly and the boat was swallowed by the haze as it left the dock. Onshore was chaos as families unloaded trunks and leather buckets filled with their most precious goods. Horses snorted with terror and threw their heads back. Hooves clanged against cobblestones. The beast's ears were pinned back with fear. The girl was grateful her mama and little Samuel were gone, safe. The flustered captain had braced his leg against the timber wharf to steady the boat. He'd held out a hand to the girl, but she'd stepped backwards into the smoke and shower of embers, turned on her heels and ran. She'd kept running uphill away from the Thames until she could make out the line of St Paul's steeple, tall and grey against the orange sky. The cathedral's stones exploded like gunpowder as she fought her way through the panicking crowds streaming towards the river. Her steps slowed now as she trod carefully, looking down to avoid the rivulets of lead and shit flowing over the cobbles. She put a hand out to feel her way along the walls. 
Her fingers trailed across rough timber beams as her boots crunched over broken glass. The girl had lived and played in these streets and lanes all her life, and she counted them as she passed. Ironmonger, King, Honey, Milk, Wood, Butter, then Foster Lane. Almost home. The two buildings flanking hers were engulfed in red flames. Men with rolled-up sleeves were trying to douse the fire with paltry buckets of water. The fire hissed and roared up the walls and across the wooden shingles, as if laughing at the people below. Get away! It's too late! Dray to Blackfires! St Paul's is afire! It was too late to turn back. Not when she was so close to home. Not when she'd promised Papa. The frenzied chimes of St. Mary Lebeau's church drew her closer, and she inched through the thick smoke. When she felt the familiar wrought-iron number beside her front door, she threw herself against the door and forced it open. As horses cantered past and people scrambled to climb onto carts, headed for the docks or beyond the city walls, nobody paid any attention as the girl slipped inside number 32. Her chest was burning, as if with each breath she was drawing the fire deep into her lungs. Tears formed, but she wiped them away with her filthy sleeve. Now was not the time for self-pity. Instead, she fell to her knees and crawled over the blue Persian carpet in the entry hall and into the tiny room beyond, Papa's special workshop. Quick as a lark, she removed the key tied to a ribbon around her neck. She kept it tucked under her clothes whenever he was away on one of his trips, like a talisman to sing him home. The firestorm surged, heat poured in through the smashed windows and the open front door. The thunk of timber beams and collapsing houses surrounded her. The shingles atop her own roof started to smolder and whistle. Time was running out. The girl unlocked the door and hurried down the narrow stairs, stepping into the chilly cellar, She felt a moment's relief. It was so calm, so quiet after the tumult of the streets. She squatted to find the telltale bump in the dirt. It was their secret and she had to retrieve it. She knew Papa would understand. She'd promised him she would look after Mama and little Samuel, but the coins hastily wrapped in Mama's shawl wouldn't last long. She mumbled a quick prayer, then seized the shovel stowed in the corner and started to dig. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.